Welcome to Odyssey. I am your host, Fred Wellman. Chaos reigns in Washington, D.C. And meanwhile, Joe Biden's flying around the world, building coalitions, making deals and getting stuff done. You know, that's the exact same opening I used last week. I mean, literally, I went to update the script and, and I was like, oh, shit, that's the exact same thing. And so I didn't update it. And that tells you exactly where we are in the world about right now. It's a freaking mess. A House GOP came in agree on rules to pass spending bills, no matter actually passing the bills. They are truly openly at war with themselves now, which we totally saw coming. If you watch the show for even a day, you know, they're just it's a disaster. And, you know, we're going to talk about that. But I got a great guest talking about some other big issues that are going on now. So let's get right at it. All right, welcome, welcome. I am your host, Fred Wellman. This is On Democracy with me, F.P. Wellman. You're in the right place. Uh, we have shut down almost assured as the House GOP fights. Uh, and, the, of course, the big news story that everybody's talking about right now is uh, the dress code in the Senate. Uh, <laughs> because I don't know. I don't understand anything right now. I think I do. Every time I think I know what's going on in the world, they do things like worry about the dress code in the Senate. Uh, meanwhile, the good news keeps coming for Democrats. The Republicans just don't see it coming. I think they're incapable of changing their ways. Uh, as we heard this week on Tuesday, there was a couple special elections and Republicans lost a special election in New Hampshire uh, in a very Trump district, um, new, nearly losing control of the state house in New Hampshire. They've had for a while. A Democrat, Hal Rafter, won in a landslide. And now the GOP margin in, in the New Hampshire House is only 198 to 197. And there's another special election on November 7th in a Democrat heavy district. And so you're going to have an evenly divided uh, uh, break there. In Pennsylvania, they also lost control of the state house. Control of the Pennsylvania state has just flipped to the Democrats because of a special election. If you were with us last week or a couple weeks ago, we had Simon Rosenberg on. Uh, I think that brings, I want to say, 40 special elections since Dobbs that Democrats have outperformed uh, in every day. Right? And this now where they keep doing it. So, you know, but the thing is, one of the hottest topics for me this week, especially, if you saw the video I did for Midas Touch about the Meet the Press interview, the, the baffling debut of Kristen Welker, uh, where she gave an hour uh, to let Donald Trump lie his ass off. Um, and, and the frustration a lot of us have had with how the media normalizes that conversation and normalizes Trump as a Republican candidate. And luckily for me, once again, you know, I always get the guests with the best timing. And so I've got the perfect guest to, to discuss that. So, I want to welcome Eric Deggins. He's the NPR's first full-time TV critic and media analyst providing coverage across, well, we were joking in the pre-show about he covers all of the vast network of NPR. He's been a journalist for three decades and lives in Tampa Bay area. Most importantly, he's the author of Race Bader, How the Media Wields Dangerous Words to Divide a Nation, uh, written about a decade ago, which we're going to talk about right there. you got to plug the book, right? <laughs> and it's available on Amazon and it delivers in just a couple of days. I know. It's a terrific book. So welcome to the show, Eric. I really appreciate you taking time. You're busy schedule for us. Thanks for having me. Well, let's just jump off the ropes at the top there, right? So I know you, you didn't, I don't know if you talked about it yet, but a lot of us are kind of aghast at the uh, at the launch of, of, of Make the Press. One of the things I highlighted in the video I did, and it's probably inappropriate, but, you know, <laughs> was the fact that, of course, uh, the, 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 the Trump uh, campaign teams, Jason Miller had a little steak dinner a month ago in Milwaukee before the debate. Kristen Welker attended, a number of them attended. We never heard much about that. A month later, Donald Trump is the exclusive guest on the very first new Meet the Press, um, and and it, it showed a lot of things. And I love and I'd love to get your opinion on that. But for a lot of it, felt like the media still doesn't know how to handle him, which is shocking to me. After what eight years? I mean, what do you see from something like that? And how do they handle? How do your colleagues handle a, a Donald Trump? Yeah, it is really uh, difficult to handle someone who basically 
the center of his worldview is based on a lot of lies. Right. Uh, he and, and these are lies that he insists are true. And these are lies that are sometimes complicated and, and tough to parse out, uh, particularly in a, in a live setting. Now, you know, NBC and, 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 and Meet the Press uh, tried to address that by pre-taping the interview so that they had uh, uh, an ability to um, parse what he was saying. And if he said something that they felt, I guess, was beyond the pale, they could not include it or or include some context. You know, she talked with uh, Peter Peter Baker from The New York Times <laughs> also. Um, but I think in the in the in the end, when you have somebody who is the Republican, uh, who is seems to be the front runner for the Republican nomination, and 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 constantly constantly says things that aren't true and says them in a way that is difficult it's difficult to stop him yeah. it's difficult to fact check him it's difficult to introduce the new material you know one of the things that i have been encouraging and others have been encouraging journalists to do in the trump era is to do what we call the truth sandwich where if if you have to say that someone said something that's untrue for example um if if donald trump um, you know, is indicted um, for efforts to overthrow the election because he believed that he had won the election. Right. Then you 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 say before you introduce the clip that this isn't true that he he did lose the election, and then you have the clip of him saying what he believes, and then after that you also say, well, you know, nothing that he says has any basis in fact, and in, in that he did indeed lose a free and and yeah. fair election, right. and that at least the lie is sandwiched in between, you know, two elements of truth, and. Um, you know, uh, it's 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 impossible to do that when you're having a conversation with someone in the way that that interview was structured. I do think that um, any but but you know, you're in a situation where, you know, Trump is not going to agree to an interview with a, a mainstream news outlet. Right. Um, where they change the rules substantially right. or where they 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 say they're going to do a robust fact checking or they're constantly interrupting him right. when he says something, um, you know, that's untrue. So you're in a situation where, um, you know, you're 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 making yourself vulnerable to broadcasting a lot of things that he says are untrue, even if you try to correct them after he said them or, you know, somehow around what he said. You know, you, you still wind up platforming a lot of untrue information, right? And into a and 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 normalizing so much of it, right? I mean, I think they they tried. I'm sorry, weekly to put up a, a fact check website after the event. It's like it's far too late at that point. And and that was something. I t it's funny. I did tweet that out saying I'd love to know what the agreement was because you and I know. And I was a, I was a PR guy. I was on the other side. I was the guy pitching these things, right? And I know pitching the media like you're going to have the framing of it. They're going to have like here's what here's what's on and off. You know what's what's fair game. What's not, and I, you know, it had to be several pages of discussion to to get to a point where he did his first mainstream media interview. But it was just, a, I think, it was disappointing to a lot of us. I mean, a lot of us feel like, I, and for me especially, the conversation around the interview afterwards, and and you, I think, I think there was an interview, it was a clip of her and um, Dana Bash talking, and uh, and it's just 
like he's like, yeah, he's really leaning into how he's going to differentiate himself from Biden and, da, 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 and you know, how he's going to how he's a deal maker. And it's like all this normal shit it's like, yeah, but there, what about the part where he's been indicted four times with 91, <laughs> you know, 91 charges against him? Like, can we lean into that? Um, and it, it just I think a lot of us are having flashbacks to 2015 where I mean, he just became, you know, the, the, they enjoyed him too much. I mean, I, I you and I, you know, well, I mean, you know part of the problem that uh, hosts like Kristen Welker are going to confirm front is that when you have a, a a set of candidates or a set of politicians who insist that things are not true right but that are true right if, if they're they are committed to this idea that trump did not lose um you know the election against joe biden then you're you're placed in a situation where you have to constantly challenge them and they come on your air and then they decide they don't want to face that kind of challenging. So then you can't get Republicans to come on your show. Right. And 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 so, you know, I think uh, aside from having a, a really uh, an interview that got a lot of attention for her first, um, you know, um, program as the moderator of Meet the Press, it was also a signal to Republicans, hey, you can come on and we won't grind you into the ground by constantly challenging all of these, you know, untrue things that you are saying. And but unfortunately, what that does is it puts the it puts the program in a situation where they're platforming a, a lot of nonsense, and the yeah. moderator isn't adequately challenging them. Right. And so, so part of the problem is wanting to have access to people uh, to come on your show. The other problem is that TV um, needs to have a, a certain, these, these interactions need to have a certain energy. They need to have yeah. a certain flow. And if the moderator is constantly interrupting someone who's talking every time they say something that's not true, then it makes the moderator look bad and it makes the whole interview uncomfortable to watch and it's not great television yeah. so that's the other pressure that tv um people face and that often results in these interviews not being as um revelatory as you would like yeah. the, the moderators often don't know how to press people when they constantly say things that are untrue in ways that are still tv friendly and in ways that don't leave them looking terrible yeah. Uh, if you look at somebody like uh, Mehdi Hassan, I was on, just thinking uh, he read my mind. ABC, <laughs> yeah. You know, he he's he's come up with a way yeah. uh, of course, to constantly challenge people, but he does run the risk of, of sometimes looking like a jerk. Yeah. Uh, because you bring somebody on your on your show and you won't let them move yeah. on from something they've said until they admit that what they said is not true or it becomes kind of a cartoonish confrontation yeah so you know uh I, I think tv uh reporters in particular have not figured out how to deal with this they've not figured out how to challenge uh people like that in the moment and communicate that so much of what they're doing is is either based on things that have not been proven or based on things that are demonstrably untrue yeah i mean we're through the looking glass in a, a post-truth era in every way i mean we, we have an entire party that's dedicated themselves to not re not seeing reality uh and and then they have a media ecosystem in many ways that supports that right with the fox news ecosystem and and it kind of yeah. goes which is a great place to talk about your book right i mean it's you know the books are the book it's it's over a decade old you wrote it in 2012 and when i got it and i was going through i'm like okay this is this was bad then but 
I'm not necessarily sure. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> you know, right. I mean, you know, that's it. I was going to say, well, you know, shit, <laughs> you know, I mean, you had a call to arms. I mean, you did, you, you did, you, yeah. you, you did a call to arms. So we had to, we have to, um, we had to have a more civil discourse. We had to have the media understand their role in the destruction of institutions. But here we are 11 years later or 12, you know, and, and, and in many ways it's, and, and the media landscape has changed. I mean, do you, are you, does it just make you a little bit, crazed i guess I'm, I'm looking for the right word when you when you know what you wrote and in the moment and and you could probably explain better than me why you wrote why race Bader came about but the the idea being that that many in the media they're not even aware that they're encouraging this in uncivility the the race especially around race race discussions i mean that's really the, the a lot of the focus is i'd love to hear your thoughts i mean now 11 years later yeah, I mean, you know, I, I originally wrote the book because I was covering uh, media and television for the St. Petersburg Times newspaper here in Florida. Yeah. And I was constantly doing these stories sort of piecemeal. And so when you're doing stories for a newspaper, obviously there's a lot of stuff you can't put in because the story can't be, you know, super long. Yeah. So I had a lot of material that I wasn't able to put into my stories just because I didn't have room for it. And then uh, I also realized that uh, not a lot of people were doing really incisive and detailed and well-researched books about this phenomenon yet. So I decided to try and pull together all the things that I had about how different media outlets were dealing with race and usually not dealing with them well, and also how some media outlets were weaponizing prejudice and stereotypes and, and things like that in order to boost um, their their uh, viewership right. and, in fact, build a bond with their viewers that's about, um, you know, demonizing certain kinds of people and, and pulling other people in and being very definitive about who the accepted people are, who this broadcast is for, and then who is is not part of that group. Yeah. And often the people not in that group were non-white people um, and right. uh, and and gay people. Right. Uh, we weren't even really talking that much about transgender people back then, but no. they'd be in that group now. Yeah. So, you know, we're in a situation now where instead of people acting to try and save um, the way in which we connect to each other and talk to each other about contentious issues and the way in uh, which America kind of converses with each other. Instead, the, the lesson that some too many people have learned is that anger and division and um, and and uh, demonizing people, that that all is is a really successful engagement strategy. And so we have more and more platforms utilizing that engagement strategy, yeah. um, regardless of how badly it is uh, destroying the nation's social fabric. I mean, this is a nation that is founded on the idea that we welcome people in and they bring their distinct heritage and yep. history and it becomes part of this greater thing yep. that is an amalgamation of all the things that all of us have, have brought um, to the to the table as Americans. Yep. And instead, you know, what some of these outlets are constantly promoting is that there's there's one acceptable way to be an American and anything that doesn't fit in that is to be rejected and demonized and feared. And and in the process it may help their page views and yeah. ratings and engagement, but it destroys the cohesion that we feel and the, and, and the ability that people have to agree to disagree sometimes. Yep. And beyond that, um, we're to the point now where so many stances are taken, not because of facts, 
yeah. but they're taken because of political ideology yeah. that that people mm-hmm. don't even know what facts to believe in anymore. And our process for figuring out, you know, when we were confronted with a pandemic uh, that was at a level that we hadn't seen in a hundred years, yep. figuring out the the very natural process of public health entities trying different strategies to contain that pandemic, some of them working, some of them not. All of that was poisoned by political process. And every time they tried something that wasn't as effective as people wanted it to be, that was taken as some sort of sign that the whole idea of fearing this pandemic or taking certain measures to contain it was invalid. And the only reason some people were taking those positions is because it was politically expedient for them. Yep. And so that's, you know, that's where you, you really start to scratch your head and wonder, what are people thinking? I mean, when World War II, when we decided we were going to enter World War II and take on the Axis powers, there wasn't this moment where everybody sort of said, stood around and said, you know, well, let's debate whether or not the Nazis are actually exterminating Jewish people. Right. Or let's let's sit around and talk bad? about whether or not, um, you know, the Japanese forces actually killed people at Pearl Harbor or whether they were crisis actors. Right. You know, we, I mean, yeah, we exactly. Those, Where's the we proof? We didn't have those kind of conversations. Debate we me. have our debates about whether or not we should enter the war based on actual facts and what was actually happening. Yep. And, and now, you know, when we're faced with these sort of world-defining strategies, we are hampered by the fact that a, a good portion of our discourse is based on things that simply are not true. Yeah. And we're not talking about facts. Right. And so, you know, you make decisions that, that are likely to be faulty because you, you, you're not really considering what's actually happening out there. And the only way that spell gets broken occasionally is when a calamity comes along where the facts of it are so massive, you can't deny it. When a, when a, when a, a pandemic comes along and it kills uh, hundreds of thousands of people. Yeah. At some point, you have to acknowledge the reality of it. Yeah. Um, you know, when a when a, a recession comes along and it throws hundreds of thousands of people out of work, and I'm talking about 2009, you know, you kind of have to recognize it. You can't deny it anymore. And yeah. so, you know, but but it's taking greater and greater calamities to shake people out of this craziness yeah. and get them to face facts, regardless of their ideology. And I and I fear for what it will take next to shake people out of this sort of bizarre love for ideology over fact. I, uh, I mentioned that I was the, I was the executive or the um, chief of staff of a, uh, of a COVID field hospital. <clears throat> and we were veterans who ran that in New York. And it was, it was all special operations veterans and all. And uh, one of my big jobs as administrative chief of staff, of the hospital was the um, managing our employees. And I'm not going to lie. We actually had a guy who came, he volunteered and got accepted whose mission was to prove COVID was fake. This is April. This is right after it started. Uh, and I was getting messages from friends in South Carolina. I have a friend who was actually a West Point classmate uh, saying, oh, this, this is all BS. You're forcing me to shut my company down because a bunch of people in New York, you know, it was just it was just it was shocking to me that we had a position like that where, you know, truth was you know, divergent, just actual truth was divergent. And, and, and going back to the book and the timeline we're talking about a decade since then, do you think the shifting media landscape from, I mean, I think even when the book came out, it was brought and we were, I mean, it was Bill O'Reilly is a guy who called you a race baiter. I mean, it's, it almost seems like a, uh, <laughs> a healthy on time that Bill O'Reilly was, yeah. a, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and now we've got, you know, we've got, uh, we, we've had the arc of Tucker Carlson, who's now on t- X slash Twitter now. I mean, so the, the, the media we, di- we, uh, um, 
digest is i mean look at look at my touch network where my show appears the my touch network they've got over 1.5 million subscribers who are and every show i post uh you'll see the comments is one they're wonderful thank you minus mighty for being so nice <laughs> uh but you'll see a lot of people like yeah i don't watch i don't watch news anymore i get it from this i come here to see what's really going on so we won't even have uh, we don't now we have different facts we have different sources of said facts in such well, a diverse you know, way this is, this is something that i, I weren't warned about in the book yeah one of the things I talked about was that Fox News's strategy for galvanizing viewers, um, part of it was this something that hadn't really been done in journalism before. Um, in the past, when journalism platforms compete, uh, they would say, we get the story faster. Right. We get the story more accurately. We get the story in a way um, that is more comprehensive. You know, yeah. we do a better job as journalists. Uh, but the New York Times would never say, the Washington Post actively lies to you. The, 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 yeah. the, the New York Times would never say, CBS is telling you things that aren't true in order to serve a political agenda. Yeah. Um, Fox News came along and said, our competitors are lying to you. Our competitors are not being truthful. They're not they're not practicing truthful journalism. You have to come to us to get the truth. Yeah. And 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 so um, number one, of course, that's not true. Yeah. There's that. <laughs> and, number two, <laughs> and number two, what it does is it destroys people's faith in all journalism. Right. Um, because you can't go to people and say all these other outlets that. You know, the world has told you, try very hard to be truthful. And when they're not truthful, it is usually a mistake. Right. If all of that is not true, then, you know, why would I believe that this one outlet that's telling me this is also is exempt from all of that? Right. <laughs> you, know, yeah. uh, uh, you know, eventually, you know, um, you know, a lot of people would say, you know, OK, maybe all those other outlets um, are lying to me, but this one can't be perfect either. All journalism is terrible. Uh, and so it winds up creating an environment where no one can believe the facts that they're presented or even believe that the media outlets they're consuming are presenting what they believe to be facts in good faith. Right. And that's the thing that gets at the heart of why journalism works in America. There's a sense that if you're reading the New York Times or if you're listening to NPR and you hear something that either turns out to not be true or you hear something um, that that you know, you, you think is a little off base, it's happening because someone made a mistake or it's happening because someone didn't necessarily fully report out the story or it's happening because someone made an assumption right. that might not have been accurate. But, you know, 80 or 90% of the time, those are good faith errors. People are trying to present material that they think is true, but they may fall short. Yep. There may be a small segment where there's someone who, who has some sort of preconceived notion that they insist on reflecting in a story. And I'm not saying that doesn't happen, right. but, I, but I am saying that it's been my experience as somebody who's worked for over 30 years in, in mainstream journalism, most of the time people are, are trying really earnestly and hard yeah. to deliver the facts even when they get things wrong. If people stop believing that, and if they believe that every news outlet is actively uh, trying to fool them, then you reach a point where we can't agree on the simplest facts and our whole information system breaks down. Yeah. And, and, and that's what the people who are pressing these ideas to make money and not 
acknowledging the social harm they're causing, this is this is what they're really creating. They're yeah. creating a situation where um, even the people who who are their audience, who who trust them, don't fully trust them because they're bought into the notion that everything that they see in the media is some sort of creation with a political um, goal behind it. Yeah. And that's a great place to take a pause. We've got our great, some great sponsors this week, as always, and uh, we'll hear from them. This episode of On Democracy is sponsored by our friends at BetterHelp. You know, it feels like fall here in Missouri. Life's picking up speed. It's festival season. Election season's kicking off. School's back. Work's kicking up. All these things. I find it so easy to get caught in what everyone else needs from me this time of year and never take a moment to think about what I need for myself or you for yourself. I've always struggled this time of year with important life milestones, work, and of course, the changing seasons as we head into winter. I think because so many of us spend so much of our time working hard to keep up and giving to others, you know, I can leave us feeling stretched thin, burned out, and kind of frazzled, to be honest with you. I've found for years now that therapy has given me the tools to find more balance in my life so I could keep supporting others without leaving myself behind. In my life, I've been very, very fortunate to find therapy is incredibly helpful. It's helped me for learning positive coping skills, how to set boundaries, and generally how to become a better version of myself. I want you to know that therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major life difficulties or challenges or trauma. It is for everyone because of what you, know, what you are going through every day, well, it matters. So if you're thinking about starting therapy, I highly recommend you give BetterHelp a try. Now it's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. I started my therapy journey online and it changed my life. With BetterHelp, you just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed actual therapist. And you can even switch therapist at any time for no additional charge. I think you should find more balance in your life with BetterHelp. So what I want you to do is just visit betterhelp.com slash Fred today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash Fred. And start your therapy journey today. Hey, look, everyone knows how annoying cheap razors are. The cuts, the irritation, the frustration, and don't get me started on subscription razor services. The headaches they can cause if they show up on your doorstep. That's why you gotta meet Henson Shaving. Henson Shaving is a family-owned aerospace parts manufacturer that's made parts of the ISS and the Mars rover, and now they're bringing precision engineering to your shaving experience. And, and I'm an old pilot, so I love me some aerospace manufacturing, let me tell you. Now, razor blades are like diving boards. The longer the board, the more wobble. The more wobble, the more nicks, cuts, and scrapes. A bad shave isn't a blade problem, it's an extension problem. By using aerospace grade CNC machines, Henson makes metal razors that extend just 0.0013 inches, which is less than the width of a hair. That means a secure and stable blade with a vibration-free shave. It gets better. The razor is built in channels to evacuate hair and cream and makes clogging virtually impossible. So seriously, Henson Shaving wants the best razor, not the best razor business. That means no plastic, no subscriptions, no proprietary blades, and no planned obsolescence. The Henson razor works with standard dual-edged razor blades to give you that old-school shave, like me, with the benefits of new-school tech. So once you own a Henson razor, it's only about, I don't know, 3 to $5 per year to replace the blades. So I tell you, I don't shave often, obviously. But my first shave with the Henson razor was incredibly refreshing. The design is sleek, and the durability is top-notch. 
the Hanson razor is truly so much better than your run-of-the-mill razor, and it's you know, the quote-unquote traditional razor bland that you're used to. Now, the affordability factor is absolutely game-changing. No more wasting your money on expensive blades. With Henson shaving, you can get like a year of blades for around $5. So, it's time to say no to subscriptions, say yes to a razor that's lasts you a lifetime. Visit hensonshaving.com slash Fred to pick the razor for you and use code Fred and you'll get two years worth of blades free with your razor. Just make sure to add them to your cart. Two years of blades. So that's 100 free blades when you head to H-E-N-S-O-N-S-H-A-V-I-N-G dot com slash Fred and use code Fred when you're there. Check them out. And we're back. Um, that's it, it, and that is the the truth problem, right? That, that what are facts, you know, <laughs> you know, and and it and I think you 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 know you live in Florida, um, and you've seen you're right there on ground zero where history is being rewritten. And I've talked to a lot of my black friends, and they're just horrified. I had Michael Harriet on the show about a month ago, and and Michael just. Um, just dismantles the whole thing <laughs> in a very direct, he's got a new book coming out, you know, uh, Black History AF, which I'm really looking forward to. And, and it's the same sort of thing. And, and it, for me, <clears throat> that is, there, one of the things I say in the show a lot, Eric, is I say that what we people call culture war, like they've been, a lot of folks have dismissed that history, the issue of, of these new facts and the presentation of history as a culture war issue. But I live in Missouri, right? You live in Florida. You know, people have there's there's real impact these culture wars. People are losing their lives. Transgender uh, youth and, and transgender adults are being forced uh, out of their healthcare system uh, and back, you know, back and back away. People are moving away from Missouri right now. So the culture wars are real war because there's real victims of these wars. I mean, what's the impact? Do you think? I mean, as you see this, the, the, the government now is aggressively um, changing the curriculum. Is aggressively. Um, I mean, we throw the F word around a lot, fascism, I know it's, it's distasteful to a lot of people, but it's hard not to see it. What do you see that from your perspective as, as, a, as, a, as, as a, an observer of media and an observer of this fact system, if you will? Well, you know, what, what I would say is that the, the, what really saddens me about all of this is that, again, these politicians, um, and we're seeing a lot of them at the state level in Florida, yeah. Yeah. these politicians are building their careers and building their support on this idea that this has to be a war, that somehow, um, you know, white people are being, white kids are being intimidated in classrooms, mm. and so parents have to fight back, and it has to be a contentious issue. Mm. But the, the point of fact is that it, it doesn't have to be a war. Uh, if we are focused on the facts that we know happened in the past, and we're focused on being honest about those facts, it doesn't have to be a conflict. It doesn't have to be a situation where people feel shame. It can just be a situation where you acknowledge what happened. Yep. And then you try to talk about what it means for the world that we're living in today. And it's not always a situation where uh, people of color or women are looking at, you know, white people and males and saying, you know, you oppressed us, you oppressed us. Here's a constant story of oppression. Right. Um, anyone who studied American history knows that it's a very convoluted and complex situation. You know, America, right after the end of the Civil War, um, was a very different place than America before and during the Civil War and America 
um, you know, say um, 40 or 50 years after yeah. when the redemption had really settled in and, and, and uh, you know, white uh, politicians had started to claw back the voting rights that black males had in the wake of the Civil War yep. and, and, and started to take away uh, black wealth and, tar- and, and target black people through lynchings. Um, so, you know, the story in America has always been progress and setbacks and progress and yeah. setbacks, progress and backlash, progress and backlash. Yep. And one of the things that the people who who control most of the wealth in America, one of the things they've done very successfully is that they've convinced rank and file white people that they have less in common with people of color who are in their same socioeconomic status than they do with the white people who run everything. Hmm. And, and this goes all the way back to the Virginia slave codes, um, you know, um, back uh, hundreds of years ago, when we first saw laws created to officially recognize uh, white people having a little bit more privilege, the average white person having a little bit more privilege than black people, because they realized in Virginia, they, they'd had something called Bacon's Rebellion, where um, um, indentured servants who were white and and enslaved people who were black had banded together uh, mm-hmm. to try and force the the moneyed wealthy white men who ran that state to fe- to be fairer to all of them, yep. and they realized they had to do something to break up that coalition. So they passed what what are now called the Virginia Slave Codes, and so you know we look all the way to today. And we see how working class white people are constantly propagandized yep. and, and and told to to fear um, undocumented immigrants, yeah. told to fear uh, black people, particularly in, in cities, yep. uh, told to fear um, gay people and transgender people when uh, often they have much more in common with those people than they do. Uh, with the Mitch McConnell's of the world, or they do with Tucker Carlson's of the world, um, and 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 those people have a vested interest in breaking up any sort of coalition yeah. uh, that might be formed between working class white people and working class non-white people to force the ruling classes in this country to pay them a better wage, uh, to uh, to to have a workable system of bringing in immigrants who we need yep. to work jobs yep. and then making sure they get paid a fair wage when they're in this country and they have access to the social security benefits that they're already paying, even when they work as yep. undocumented workers. You know, we have, we have uh, a dysfunctional immigration system in part because this nation has a hard time acknowledging that there are a great deal of people who work in a lot of industries who don't get paid minimum wage, yep. who don't access social security benefits, even though they're paying into the system, yep. who don't access uh, local um, amenities, even though they're paying yep. uh, through sales taxes and, and state taxes, they're paying taxes. You know, yeah. we're bringing people in, paying them less, taking money from them in taxes, and then turning around and demonizing them for coming to the country in the first place. Yep. So, you know, there's all these systems that are set up to funnel money um, from the many to the wealthy who run this country. And one way that's enabled is through these media outlets that encourage um, a severing of connection between groups that have a lot in common because 
um, you know, they have the same socioeconomic status. They're working the same jobs. They yeah. have the same goals for their families. And yeah. that's, that to me is the saddest thing about what's happening in, in Florida is, uh, you know, some politicians are saying it's a war, yeah, but it's a war because they want it to be a war. Right. It doesn't have to be a war. Right. It can be a conversation right. and it can be about, uh, you know, reading this book and reading that book and talking about the ideas in both of them. But instead you have legislators in Tallahassee who are telling local school boards how to teach um, in, in local communities. And that's, that's never made any sense. No, and it, and it really plays out in the UAW strike right now, right? That the, the, if you see the comments of the Republican candidates, especially, I think Tim Scott just came out saying, oh, if they go on strike, they should be fired. <laughs> and, and when you look at the details of that strike, which I have done, uh, is they haven't had a pay, they gave up their benefits. They gave up things in 2008, 2009 during the big crash when the companies are going to go bankrupt. And then they've never gotten them back. They haven't had a pay raise. I mean, the starting pay for a factory worker in UAW is $16 an hour. I, mean, I was shocked at that number. Well, <laughs> $16 and, and, and to work in a factory. And one of the issues they talk about is that they cut a deal so that newer workers would get paid less. Yeah. That was part of the deal. It <laughs> and, went and down. Established, it established was nineteen. Workers. Yeah, it was nineteen. Yeah, established workers would make a lot. Would make a lot more, it's but crazy. the new workers are getting paid uh, at a much at a much lower rate. So, um, but again, you know, we're in a situation where people are not debating facts, right? You know, if, if we had a situation where right. Republican candidates and Democratic candidates could debate on the merit of the facts and talk about why it make, makes sense to support. Um, unions in America or why might not make sense. And, yeah. and we're all talking about facts. That's, that's, a, that's the debate I would love to see happen. But right. instead, you know, Tim Scott quoted Ronald Reagan who fired air traffic controllers. Right. It's an entirely different industry. <laughs> it, it was 30 yeah. years ago, um, a an entirely different economic time. Yeah. You know, uh, it almost felt like a flippant answer that wasn't really connected to the facts of the current moment yeah and that that to me is what i think made him look bad is that you know he wasn't really talking about where we are today and he wasn't talking facts yeah. you didn't even have a sense of whether he even knew the issues that were at play um you know in the yeah. strike yeah none of them and, and, and who who can support somebody for president who who isn't aware of the details of the you know a, a historic strike that is yeah. threatening you know, one of America's uh, linchpin industries. I mean, did you see so him? Did you see him where he talks about? I'm sorry. That's the problem. Yeah. You know, we're yeah. not talking about facts. And we're not, and we're living in a different era of facts. And I mean, because he did, he, in, an, in an earlier thing, I think it's in a video I did for Midas, he literally talked about, oh, I have this friend, my prayer buddy or something, I don't even know how to go there, <laughs> who was uh, doesn't have a high school degree and he worked in the steel industry and he was making six figures a year some years through his hard work because he worked hard. And I swear to God, I was waiting for him to say, you know, if these, if these auto workers would just stop eating avocados host in Starbucks. I mean, it was just such a, it was such a disconnected from reality statement to, to highlight a guy who was in a different industry decades ago. I was at a fair this weekend. Um, one of someone very dear to me, their father worked at, um, uh, Caterpillar. I'll just say Caterpillar. And this gentleman we were talking to had worked there as well. And he talked about a friend of his who retired at 62, like 20 years ago from Caterpillar. Like, that was a different time. He had full benefits. He had full, you know, <laughs> and they gave all that up in 2008. And, and it just seems just this disconnect. And that does go back to our media framing that. And it, and it was frustrating within our peers in the media not framing that. Not, they, they get focused on the, the, there was like a four day work week proposal. You know, 30, that was all they talked about. And they're not, they're not framing the idea that you don't understand these 
auto workers gave up what had been the the cornerstone foundation uh, benefits of their industry in 2009 and now their companies are making record profits and they got none of it back and i get frustrated because the media is failing to frame that story at all uh, well it, I, I, and i will have to say i'm not familiar i'm not yeah. as familiar with the the intricacies of what uh you it's know, a lot uh, too i had to do some homework about a lot giving up so i don't you know i, I, I don't know if i can co-sign all of that but yeah. what what i can say is that um again Number one, we say the media when really we're talking about cable TV news and we're yeah, talking about that's TV fair. news outlets. Yeah. And I would I would hazard a guess that you could pull up the New York Times, you could look at coverage from NPR, you could look at coverage. Yeah. I know. News I have outlet. to eat that one, Eric. I have to eat bunch, that one, Eric. Yeah. <laughs> you can look at coverage from a bunch of other uh, outlets that are not. Um, you know, mainstream TV outlets, and you yeah. see more watch coverage and more, um, you know, uh, context. Um, yes. So that's so that's that's that's. One I, thing. I do agree, that, and I, that, I, that, I that's, that that's one. one thing I would say. But the other thing is the when you reject facts and you reject a scientific approach uh, to things or a respect for how science works, another thing that you do is you get overly reliant on anecdotes. Yeah, and it is it is easy to meet one or two people whose personal stories reflect the way you want to see the issue. Yeah. But, you know, I grew up in Gary, Indiana in the seventies and eighties. Mm. That was when the steel industry yeah. created and uh, local steel companies went from employing something like 30,000 people to employing 10% of that, something like 3000 people. Wow. Right. So uh, we had a system where if you didn't go into the military or go to college, um, you would probably go work in the steel mills and you could earn uh, a, a middle class living. Yeah. Uh, if you got a decent job there and there yeah. was a whole progression, you know, there were tons of people who would come out of the high schools. They would get a job there. They would get their first decent car. They would get their first decent place living away from their parents. They would find a great person to settle down with and get married. And then they would start to raise a family. And all of that was funded by, um, you know, the great jobs that the steel industry offered. And when those vanished, in a place like Gary, there was no industry that could absorb those workers. There right. was no other place that people who didn't have a college degree, especially, could get jobs that pay that well. Right. And so the you know the 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 economy of the entire area cratered, and 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 so you know um, yeah, um, Tim Scott may have a friend who earned six figures at some point in the past, but I have lots of friends uh, who lost you know their economic stability when the steel industry vanished yeah and unlike some lucky cities like pittsburgh um they weren't able to find a secondary economy to replace it yeah and 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 the and the town was devastated so um so there's a real need obviously to talk about facts when we talk about these issues instead of relying on anecdotes that may be true for one person or maybe true for a couple of people, but they might, they are probably not true for a, a huge swath of most of the people, which you, you know, that's what you have to be talking about when you're talking about something as expansive as a labor agreement. 
I really appreciate that. And I think that's a great place also to kind of one of my, before I let you go, I want to ask one question. I saw you discussing, you had such a great discussion recently about the idea of diversity, equity, and inclusion and why it matters. You know, I've watched the way the right has turned those were essentially innocuous terms like CRT and DEI. I mean, in Missouri, they almost shut down the government by accident. I'm not making this up because some legislators wanted to outlaw DEI programs and not do business with contractors that have DEI you know, programs and, and, and somebody figured out, yeah, that's everybody. You're going to have to shut down, <laughs> you know, I mean, in their efforts to, you know, to, a lot of funny thing that, yeah, exactly. And they would be, they'd be ineligible for federal, there's a whole host of them, but you explained it very well. And it goes to what we were just talking about, right. Is, is especially in the media, because we are talking media a lot, you know, diverse, equity, inclusion, media, it does mean telling the right stories, right facts, because from where we are in our background, it matters, right. I mean, you talked about, I think you mentioned, um, the, the shooting in Texas is a good example. Could you could you expand on that a little bit? Sure. So, uh, and this relates to something that NPR, I think, kind of yeah. experienced as a news organization. We went in uh, to cover, um, of course, the the mass shooting in Uvalde, and you know, um, it, it just a, a, a horrific situation. Yeah. But of course, what you find when you go into that community is that there are a bunch of Spanish speaking Latino community members and 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 they have lives and they have you know their community and then you have uh the white folks who may not speak spanish and are not necessarily part of that community and telling the story really requires being able to talk to both elements of that community yeah and being able to move back and forth between them and so you know we were lucky in that we had um people reporters who were for npr who could speak spanish yeah and they could go in and they could talk to people and they could find out how they pronounce things something that simple simple yeah. how do they pronounce a, a town's name versus how white people pronounce the town's yeah. name how do they pronounce certain people's names versus how you know white people in the community might pronounce those things and 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 showing respect for how they pronounce things or how they talk about issues uh, allows you to get to the whole of the story you're not just telling the perspective of one part of the town you're mm -hmm. telling the perspective of the whole town yeah. and in fact you're trying to sort of figure out how to reconcile these two very different views sometimes of the same issue, the same incident, the same school, the same system, right? right. Because they're treated very differently. Right. So I always, when I talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion in journalism terms, I say it's part of accuracy. It's how you make sure that you're telling the full story and you're telling an accurate story. If a shooting, ha if a shooting happens in a certain neighborhood and the only perspective you get about it is from the police, you will not have the full story because nope. the people who live in that community may know a lot more about what happened there than the police you ever find out. Yeah. Um, so it's the job of a journalist to sort of go in and try to get all those perspectives and then pull them together into a story that sort of explains to the community what happened. And, uh, you know, a journalist that I really respect who used to run the Pointer Institute for Media Studies here in St. Petersburg yeah. said, you know, journalism keeps the community in conversation with itself. Mm. So you're constantly asking questions and you're constantly telling stories and you're constantly bringing up facts that keeps the community saying, oh, you know, what happened over there and why did that happen? And what can we do to make it better or stop it from happening? Or, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and again, you know, it all goes back to this idea that misinformation and disinformation really limits the conversation because it's hard to have a conversation with someone who has their own beliefs rooted in facts that are not true or that are substantially different than what they want to believe. Right. And just the idea 
that because you believe in something strongly enough, that makes it true. That's what makes it hard to talk to people sometimes because you have to go to them and say, look, I know you really want to believe this is true, but it is not true. (laughs) And you have to find a way to accept that. Yeah. Uh, Because if you, because if you don't, then you will insist on believing something. It's like, it's like believing to, to put it in completely crude terms. It's like believing that a a road leads to a bridge when it leads to a cliff. (laughs) And no matter how much you want to believe that road leads to a bridge, if it leads to a cliff, you are driving off a cliff. Yep. <laughs> and so wouldn't it be better to listen to somebody who can see through the fog and tell you, you know, no, that actually leads to a cliff yep. and you should stop driving before you get to it. Yep. Uh, and then once you, once you stop driving and you see there's a cliff there, everyone can agree and they can figure out how to build that bridge. Um, that's what we're missing. Yeah. And, 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 and so all of these issues, as you, as, as you noted in this conversation, they all come back to each other because once we break down that, that community conversation that journalists, that is part of our job to foster, then it makes it so much harder to achieve everything else that we want to do as a society. That's ah, perfect. I get into better. You know, I was laughing. I was thinking too. The, the problem today would be even when we do see the cliff, they're going to say, "Well, it's Biden's fault. They're supposed to build a bridge there." <laughs> you know, we, we can't even agree. We won't, yeah, I know. we won't be able to agree why at there's least, no bridge. At least, at least if you see the cliff, yeah, we know not to drive over for its existence. You won't drive off. I hope so. Man. I don't we know. can have that conversation about whether it's Biden's fault <laughs> that there's no bridge there, because at least you're recognizing that there's a, there is there's a, a cliff. Bridge. Exactly. Well, you know, well I, the, the problem is when the denial gets to the point where we are yeah. denying. And we're just driving off a cliff. And, and that's what we're all trying to stop. I think that's what we're trying to That's why I do here is like, how, how we stop? And I like being, I don't mind being wrong. It's funny. I, I did that thing where I said, oh, the media is doing something and I'm going to, you're going to laugh and I'll let you go here. Cause I am actually that guy that did that thing because no shit. When I was prepping to discuss the UAW strike, this is so embarrassing. Uh, I actually used a CNN story. So anyway, <laughs> I'm that guy, Eric. <laughs> I, mean, I had to miss so listeners, dear listeners. Well, I mean, I'm the guy that did that thing, you know, but you're right. I mean, well, you got to dig this, for it, this though. This on one other thing that I'll just mention very quickly, sure. which is that um, modern mainstream media can be frustrating because it can be it can be accurate and it can be misleading in the same moment. That's a great the way. The New York it. Times will have amazing stories. Yep. And then they also have stories that have you scratching your head and going, you know, Kristen Welker is a, ter- a terrific example. Yeah. She is a really great journalist and yeah. has done amazing work. This one Donald Trump interview was disappointing, but I'm sure she's going to do uh, great work on Meet the Press. Yeah. And, um, and, and, and I hope that people will give her her flowers when she does it, but that's, that's what's so hard for us is we want to be able to place a label on something and dismiss it. But mainstream media is constantly justifying its existence and also doing things that disappoint us in the same moment all the time. And we have to figure out how to criticize when they make mistakes, when we make mistakes without constantly condemning the whole institution because it doesn't deserve that. I, man, that's a great place. Cause that's exact. I'm a, I'm a fan. I'm a, I'm a, as a, as a, as a, you know, I was a spokesman in the army. I worked some, I mean, the people I work with double Pulitzer prize winners in, in Iraq, you know, and you know, John Fisher Burns, the New York times, legendary war reporter. I learned more from, I'm more, I learned more about journalism standing on fobs, watching demonstrations of special forces troops than I did 
attended any school I went to, just just standing there with John Fisher Burns, you know, and, and talking about journalism. Um, I'm I'm a fan of the whole thing, and so I am I am I I, I, I do catch myself getting caught into this discussion as I just did. I mean, I'm, I'm one of the people who just fell into that trap myself. So Eric, thank you. I know you got to go. I appreciate your time. This has been educational and fascinating. I love being wrong uh, every night. <laughs> and I appreciate you, uh, you being here for us and keep up the fight. Thank you. Well, I did that thing. I'm gonna I'm gonna go back to that, and it's funny. And I had and and we just had a conversation in the after show with with Eric too about that. Is is it is it is hard to see it. I, I did have to dig to find out the details of the UAW strike. Having said that, I have to admit I found the details of the UAW strike and their demands via CNN and via New York Times website. I didn't see them on TV because um, they're very complex issues. So. Even me, who is sitting here trying to be a critic, a reasonable critic, fell into the trap of they're not covering that when they actually are. So it's, it's, I admit when I'm wrong and I'm happy to admit when I'm wrong. Matter of fact, I'm happy being wrong. Matter of fact, if you know me, I'm wrong about every hour. So whatever. <laughs> but I do think we have to be, we, we do have to be careful. So I apologize for uh, being that guy on the show. And I appreciate you guys being such loyal uh, listeners. Uh, I tell you, thank you for joining the show. As you can see, it's fascinating conversation with Eric. If you were not familiar with him, uh, the book is terrific. It's 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 still as 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 timely as it was a, a decade ago. Uh, and his work is incredible, especially as he talks about the transition from. Let me get a chance to talk about. It, unfortunately, is the transition from mainstream, you know, cable to broadcast to streaming and what that means. So anyway, I appreciate you being here. As you can tell, as always, I love your comments. I, I am on this show Friday nights. Usually, I'm traveling this week, so I may hopefully I'll be there when you guys watch this. Uh, I love talking to you. I love your replies and love hearing from you. I appreciate your time. I appreciate you being loyal followers of the show. Uh, if you if you go on, you've got Apple or podcast and your podcast, uh, Spotify, Amazon, wherever, be sure to download the audio version if you're an audio listener and leave a like, leave a share, leave a review on Apple. We appreciate it. It helps us get more viewers and listeners. In the meantime, we really appreciate you. As you know, Forgotten Democrats is really ramping up now as we go. I'm hearing a lot of really scary rumors and uh, that there are less, there, there, that we're going to have a cycle where I'm very nervous. We're going to have a a lot of uh, Republicans running unopposed this cycle, uh, shockingly in, in this in this time where it could be a very contentious uh, presidential election year, which means there'll be a big voter turnout. Uh, and I'm worried we're not going to have enough Democrats who are stepping up to run for office. So forgotten Democrats, as, as I've mentioned before, is a very simple idea. The simple idea is a special FEC earmark that will allow us to fund with your money, specifically monthly donations we use, but monthly donations divided amongst all the Democratic nominees from the least first. So you've got a guy who hasn't raised a ton of money because he's in an obscure district. He's in a very tough race. He's in a very tough gerrymandered area. But they deserve to put up a fight against a Republican. They deserve to, you as a citizen, deserve to have a competitive election no matter what. Uh, those are the guys who get the money first. They'll be funded from the bottom up. So I, I love the model. If you want to join our email list, it's very easy. It's triple three, uh, excuse me, double three three triple seven three three seven 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 to get our email list. You can go right to forgottendemocrats.org to join even better. Love to have you join us. Uh, in the meantime, uh, you can can. Follow us there, and I'd, I'd love you to be part of that movement as we go into uh, the cycle. Because it's September, folks. We're starting to talk about elections again, and it's that time. And we really need to help good people run for office. Uh, in the meantime, as you can know, you can always find us at FP Wellman. On, I'm still on X, FP Wellman. Uh, I'm on uh, Threads, and I love Threads. FP Wellman Official on Instagram, everywhere else. The show is on Democracy Pod. We can follow our, our YouTube channel as well on Democracy Podcast on YouTube as well. We're adding some more stuff to that as we speak. We've got some really cool stuff in the works. I can't wait to show you. Uh, as we build out, uh, build out this wonderful community that we've been built together. 
As always, Substack, fpalma.substack.com. The, the Substack's got some, I'm, I'm adding a lot to Substack. I'm excited about that. So a lot of cool things coming uh, because we're in the fall and it's time to start ramping things up. And I love you being a part of our community and part of the show. Thank you for joining us. We will see you next week. You know, this may shock you, but I'm a bit of a fan of good quality bath and body products. So I'm excited to introduce you to Sugar and Spruce. It's a woman and family owned and operated small business. It's all about making your bath time routine feel like a treat. At Sugar and Spruce, they believe that indulgence and self-care can go hand in hand. That's why they craft their products with the philosophy of fun. Oh, while keeping them oh so good for you. It's all about finding the perfect balance, like a foam party for your senses, without any harsh chemicals or nasty preservatives. And guess what? They've got a little something for everyone under their umbrella. That's right. Ladies, gentlemen, even the little ones can enjoy the magic of Sugar and Spruce bath products. It's a bath time extravaganza for the whole family. So, you know, look, whether you're a bath aficionado, a bubble enthusiast, or just someone who wants to add a sprinkle of joy to your day and have a great start, Sugar and Spruce has you covered. They got bath bombs that sizzle, bath salts that transport you to a serene oasis, <laughs> and handcrafted traditional soap, which I just love, to make your skin feel fresh and clean, as well as a line of products just for men. Support a woman and family-owned business. Uh, a family, you know, you might even recognize the name when you check it out. And treat yourself to some blissful bubbles today. Now, head over to their website today at sugarandspruce.com and give yourself the gift of indulgence by entering the code FRED, and you'll get 20% off your first order. That's right. If you shop online and use code FRED at checkout, you'll get a whopping 20% off your first order of handmade bath and body products straight from Frederick, Virginia. That's sugar and spruce, S-P-R-U-C-E dot com. Sugar and spruce bath products where the everyday routines become extraordinary treats. <laughs>